This week's first reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken from her. The second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And the final reading is from Paul's letter, or Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not that I have already obtained all this, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We are in the fourth week now of a five-week series called Slowing Down, which we're talking about hurry and framing it not as a, a virtue, far from it, but more as a, as a disease, as a sickness, hurry sickness that eats at you and makes a meaningful life impossible, impossible to connect with God, impossible to connect with others, impossible to really know yourself if you're always in a hurry. So we've been talking about slowing down and going on it from a couple of different angles. First, trying to figure out um, what are the, the root causes of hurry, what makes us, what drives us to hurry like this, and then also talking about what are some techniques or some practices we can engage in to, to actively slow ourselves down. So this morning we're, we're looking at what's probably the biggest root cause of hurry and that's this saying yes to, to too many things. Saying yes to things that we should have never said yes to to begin with. And that's the problem. That the solution should be pretty simple, should be pretty straightforward. Just say no. Just learn to, to say no to things. Uh, but doing that is, is, is easier said than done. It's a little bit more complicated than it seems, as we'll see today as we, we go along. So I want to start just with the observation that we do this, that we, we do say yes to too many things, to the wrong things, and then, then our, our, uh, to, to use the idiom, our plate is too full. And the thing I love about that, that image, our, our plate being too full, is that there's nowhere is this problem of saying yes to too many good things more prevalent than at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Where, and I know, you know there's none of these in the city, obviously. Um, here, you know, it's $6 an ounce at any buffet. So you have to think back to your pre-New York days if you ever visited one of these fine establishments. And what's interesting about them is that you've got all these choices, and most people, surprisingly, when they get back to their table, most people have a really difficult time 
putting together an appetizing plate of food. You, you go through the whole line, and then you look down at your plate, and it's kind of like, huh, how did, how did that happen? I don't remember doing that. It just doesn't even look that good when you're, when you're finished. Two problems with it. One, it's usually over full. There's too much on there. You know, it's spilling off of your plate onto your tray. But two, it's, it's fragmented. It's just all random. You know, you just pick things as you went along, and you never said, I'm going to center my meal on this, you know, and then put sides around it. It's just random. It's just all this random stuff. It's fragmented, and it's all thrown in together. And so it, it, it's really not that satisfying. As you know, people leave these restaurants, and they feel very filled but unfulfilled. It's, it's crazy. How can I be stuffed but still feel like something's missing? Like, what did I... Did I not get enough dessert? Did I, should I have gone for that instead of this? You still don't feel satisfied. You feel filled but unfulfilled because it's, it's too full and because it's, it's fragmented. There's no, there's no center. There's no organizing principle. And that's, you know, our lives are like that. Our lives are like that, filled but unfulfilled. Too many things, none of which necessarily connect to each other. And the problem at the, the buffet, at the all-you-can-eat restaurant, and the problem in our lives is the exact same. It's the wrong standard, the wrong threshold for what you choose to put on your plate. And the threshold that we all operate by, the, kind of the default standard, it's not, you didn't write it down ever, it's, it's you know, you didn't choose it, it's just subconscious. The, the, the standard that we use is, does this look good? You know, is this, is this a good thing? What, you know, is this, you're going through the line, does this look good? Yeah, it looks good, I'll throw it in. And the same with our lives. An opportunity comes to you, is this a good opportunity? Would this be a good thing to do? Is this a good thing to commit myself to? And if it passes that test, if it passes the good test, then you say, yeah, sure. And you end up with a life that's, that's overfull, said yes to too many things, and fragmented. So the answer, the only way to, to put together a good plate of food at a buffet, the only way to live a meaningful life is to become an expert, to become a pro at saying no. Say, no, not that. No, that's not for me. No, that looks good, but it's not what I'm looking for. And as in weeks past, our, our model for this skill is Jesus. So if you look, if you pull out your message insert and look uh, at the first selection of passages here, I'm just going to read through these. This is, uh, these are from all four Gospels, six separate incidents, just to show you how often Jesus did this. This is next to number one. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. 
He's always saying no. All throughout the Gospels, he's always saying no. He's always rejecting people. He's always denying opportunities. No, 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 no. No because it's the right idea but at the wrong time. No because it's something that's not even within his power to grant. No because it's none of his business. No because it falls outside the scope of his calling. He's always saying no. And what that means is he he clearly has to have a different threshold, a different standard for what he allows into his life than the one we're operating by. He's not going with the good enough standard. He's not going with a does this look good standard. Because he says no to all sorts of things that that do look good. I mean, just the, you know, making him king. That's his end game. He wants to become king. That's the whole point. That's why he came. People are coming, ready to make him king. Why not? Good opportunity. No. He's got some other standard. Or somebody asking to be healed. That's a good thing. It is a good thing to heal people. All else being equal. And yet he says, no. He's got some other standard besides the good enough standard. What is it? It's uh, here in the next set of verses. So look uh, next to number two now. Did you not know that I must be busy with my father's affairs? The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. If I am not doing my father's work, there is no need to believe me. My word is not my own. It is the word of the one who sent me. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I included his first recorded words there and his last recorded words. His first recorded words when he's 12 years old at the temple. Did you not know that I must be busy with my father's affairs? And then his last words on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what's true at the very beginning and what's true at the very end is what's true all the way throughout his constant refrain, his constant focus is, what does God want me to do? What does the Father want me to do? What's the Father's agenda for me? Right alongside him saying, no, 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 to all these other people, all these other requests, all these other attempts to pull him in this direction or that direction, he's saying yes, yes, yes to his Father. No to them and yes to his Father. I think that perspective of, you know, his, that's his standard. His standard is what does God want me to do? Not what's good, not what looks good, but what does God want me to do? And I think once you realize that's kind of the, the framework that he's operating in, it helps to make sense of the, the, one of these very famous passages from the Sermon on the Mount that's commonly misunderstood. So if you flip over now to the back of your insert, this is next to number three. Uh, very familiar. We've looked at this several times on Sunday before here. Do not worry, do not say, what are we to eat, what are we to drink, how are we to be clothed? Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Set your hearts on his kingdom first, and all these other things will be given you as well. And I think the way this this passage is commonly misunderstood is uh, that he's drawing a distinction between kind of worldly thoughts and spiritual thoughts. And he's saying, don't think about worldly things, don't think about food, don't think about clothing at all. Just think about God, just only think about God. Um, and, you know, I don't know, the reason people don't like this passage is because, like, what does that mean? How am I supposed to do that, you know? Unless you're a monk and you have people actually bring you food, donate you food, and you only wear one piece of clothing, you know, then you can just sit and think about God all day, you know, set your heart on the kingdom of God. But if that's not your reality, then, then what is he even saying here? How are you supposed to do this? And I think that the way to make sense of it is, is to realize that he's not drawing a distinction between spiritual thoughts and worldly thoughts. 
so much as he's drawing a distinction between many things and one thing. He's saying your life is consumed by chasing after all these many things. And if you would just focus on one thing, if you just focus on the one thing, if you just adopt a stricter standard, a stricter standard for what you allow into your life and set your hearts on the kingdom of God, all the rest of it would, would sort itself out. Set your hearts on the kingdom of God, or, or other translations have, seek first the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Set your hearts on the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. I think it's opaque to us somewhat because we, don't, we live in a world largely without kings. But it's not a, it's not a complicated concept. It's just saying uh, seek God's agenda. Seek God's program. Um, you know, God is in charge and he's got an agenda for something he wants to get done. Like any executive, like any president, he's got an agenda. You've heard it hundred times the last two weeks. What is, what is President Obama's second term agenda going to be? Every executive's got an agenda. God's the executive of the universe. He's in charge and he's got a program and an agenda that he wants carried out. And it involves everybody. It involves every one of his subservient creatures. It's your job to serve his agenda. And Jesus is saying, set your mind on that, focus on that, and the rest of it will sort itself out. And that's, that's, not, you know, that's not a foreign concept to us. I mean, that's how the world works. If you are a, a staffer for some person, if you work for some person, your job is to do your boss's bidding. It's to accomplish your boss's agenda. It's to focus on that one thing and let everything else take care of itself. And if your boss comes to you and says, hey, here's my agenda for the next month, six months, whatever, and you say, well... I, w- I would like to help you with that. I really would. But I have a lot of other things on my plate that i got to take care of. You know, your boss would say, well, it's going to be hard for me to justify paying you this week, this month, this year, if that's your, your mentality. On the other hand, if you say to your boss, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I- I'm going to do everything in my power to take care of your agenda, your boss is going to say, I'm going to do everything in my power to take care of you. It's very straightforward. But if you're always in the, in the HR office, you know, haggling over your insurance policy and how many taxes were taken out and this and that and the other and sick days and vacation days, you're not getting your job done. You're not focused on the one thing. Then everything falls apart. Jesus says, focus on the one thing. Set your heart on the one thing. Set your heart on God's agenda for you. That's where your time and attention and energy should be going, and that let him take care of you. Let him sort out the rest of it. There's a great study in contrast um, in the, the book of Luke, two characters that kind of show the, what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Very familiar as well. So let's go there now. This is uh, passage number four. You heard it read earlier. I'm going to read it again. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I've, uh, I've heard rumors about husbands using this passage 
as an excuse to not help their wives with the dishes. And I doubt that that has ever happened. I mean, I seriously doubt that that's ever happened. But uh, if it has, let me just say that, that you are a sorry excuse for a man if you've ever done that. And I'm talking to myself here as usual. Um, but So the, the point is obviously not about chores and not about not doing the dishes. And it's not about, it's not about um, relationships versus work. Just like with the Matthew passage, I think the distinction we usually draw here is the wrong distinction. Just like how Matthew, the, the Matthew 6 passage isn't about uh, spiritual thoughts versus worldly thoughts. It's about many things versus one thing. Same thing here. It's not about relationships versus work. It's not about Mary chose better because she's relational and Martha's type A and task-oriented. That's not it. It's about many things versus one thing. And Martha is overcommitted. She's committed herself to too many things. Whatever these preparations are, I don't know. But she had it in her mind that we need this, and we need that, and we need this. And she can't let it go. She's made that internal commitment to herself. She said yes, 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 yes. And after having said yes, she cannot bring herself to then say no. She can't bring herself to say no to those things when the situation requires it. Mary on the other hand, is able to say no. She's able to stop. She's able to resist all those pressures and realize there's only one thing right now. Jesus is here. There's only one thing that has to be done. God's agenda for me right now, my place in the world, my place in God's plan is to sit at Jesus's feet. And you know, the the way that this whole situation affects Martha is, is all too familiar and very sad. You know, she starts by being really frustrated because she's committed to too many things. And then she moves to, to being, um, you know, having a pity party, self-pity. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that I have all this to do? And then she moves to, to blame and resentment. You know, tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. And everybody's experienced this. You first you're frustrated, and then you're crying out to God. You know, why do I have to do all these things? This is so hard. Don't you care? Don't you see that I'm overloaded? And then you move to blame and resentment. If only my spouse would help more around the house, this would be fine. You know, if only my colleague at work would take their fair share, this would be fine. I wouldn't have to be like this. I wouldn't feel like this all the time. It's everybody else not carrying their fair share of the load that makes me into a crazy person. It's their fault. And then you you realize, too, that 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 means that Mary's behavior is all the more admirable because she's had to resist this tornado coming at her. You know, I, I mean, I guarantee you this isn't the first that Martha is bringing it up. She said something to her before Jesus ever got there. She's lobbied her. She's tried to cajole her before Jesus arrived into following her agenda, the Martha agenda. And Mary admirably is able to resist that. Mary is able to say no to, to Martha to say yes to God. And we all have you know, these high ideals about our values. This is what I rank first. This is what I rank second. This is what I rank third. But then as soon as somebody gets on our face that's, you know, raising their voice and saying, this is urgent, this is really important, I need you to do this, then, then we crumble. We crumble under the pressure because, well, they're, they're raising their voice. This must be really important. I have to do what they say. And Mary is able to resist the force of Martha's personality to say no to Martha, to say yes to what God wants for her. So with that, with that observation, then we can see that there's, there's something really freeing about this, about being able to, to say yes to God's agenda and then say no to all these other things, to, to 
adopt a standard, a principle that's more strict, that keeps your life kind of more bounded. There's something freeing about it, but, but what also needs to be said is there's something um, constraining about it. Because the only reason she's able to say no to Martha, the only reason she's able to resist all these other things, Jesus says, that Martha's concerned with, is because she's kind of enslaved to the one thing. She's made herself a slave of the one thing. And you say, well, slave, that's kind of a, a harsh word. I mean, made herself a slave to one thing. I don't know. I get priorities, I get focus, but slave, do we really have to, to put it like that? She's made herself a slave to the one thing. But, you know, you're going to be a slave one way or the other. Um, you're either going to be a slave to your impulses and your desires and your ambitions and a slave to all these obligations that you've committed yourself to and a slave to all the, the loud people in your life that are pressuring you. You're going to be enslaved to that, or you can be enslaved to the one thing. You can be enslaved to God's agenda. But there's no, you know, freedom, as we traditionally conceive of it, doesn't exist for human beings. We're subservient creatures. We were made to serve. This is the, the, the Dylan song, you know. Everybody serves somebody. You can serve this or you can serve that, but everybody serves somebody. You're after going to serve all these other things. You're going to have to be a slave to all these other things, or you can be a slave to the one thing. You can be a slave to God's agenda. And, you know, the sad thing about being a slave to all the other things is that you end up unfulfilled. The great thing about being a slave to God's agenda is that he actually takes you somewhere. Um, Today's the Super Bowl. You might have forgotten that since you were so enthralled in the message, but I'll just remind you today is the Super Bowl. And the thing that amazes me about the NFL is that these grown men choose willingly to enslave themselves for six or seven months out of the year um, to be on this team. You know, if you've watched, like, uh, the show Hard Knocks on HBO that goes behind the scenes at training camp, you see they're, they're basically treated like children. They, they stay in these dorm rooms, two, two to a room, and they've got curfews, and they've got, um, you know, they're being yelled at all the time. They've got to do these really painful physical exercises. They don't get to talk back. They don't have any say in their own destiny. They just enslave themselves by choice. Why would anybody do this? And we'll say, well, you know, I... I think, and I would do it for the money, you know, I mean, if you're getting paid like that, why not? But I I don't think the money is the answer, because if you asked a football player, you know, which part of the year do you like better, the part where you're enslaved, or the part where you get to be free and spend all your money, they live for the season, they like the season better, and even the, you know, the big paychecks are just this recent innovation of applying collective bargaining to athletics. That's a new thing. In the old days, they used to get paid pennies, and they would still do it. They would still enslave themselves. They would still make their coach their master, willingly. You say, why would anybody do that? Because he's taking them somewhere. Because he's taking them somewhere. They're part of a group that has purpose, that has one thing they're focused on, to win. To win the Super Bowl. And you know, is that a goal that, that matters? No, it doesn't matter at all. But it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter in that they, they still have one thing that they're going after. That's why even though it doesn't matter, even though it's a goal that's totally meaningless in and of itself, we are still captivated by watching these men enslave themselves, submit themselves to this one thing, to this one purpose, to be single-minded, to have one agenda that's not their own agenda, but it's the agenda of the team. We are captivated by watching them do that. It's beautiful, and it's inspiring, 
because they say no to all the distractions. They say no to all these other things, and they know. What, what a gift to be able to know this over here, this is the real thing. This is what matters. This is what counts. That over there, that's a distraction. I'm going to reject that. I'm going to keep that out of my life. That dynamic is why uh, the Apostle Paul was so fond of athletics and liked to use athletic imagery. So now if you look on your insert, this is uh, next to number five there. You heard Randy read this earlier. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Do you not know that in the league all the teams compete, but only one gets the the Lombardi trophy, play in such a way to get the Lombardi trophy. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not that I have already attained all this, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And by this point in the sermon, this should be very familiar language. One thing I do. One thing I do. I consider everything else garbage. I put blinders on to everything else. And one thing I do. Pursuing God's agenda for me. And you say, well, okay, this has been a little bit long on rhetoric and short on you know, practical suggestions so far. You know, I mean, let's say I'm with you. What would I, what would I do? How do I, what is God's agenda for me? I mean, how do I know what God's agenda for me is? That's a really common question. Even if I did know, if I've become entangled in all these other things, all these distractions, how do I extricate myself from them? How do I learn to say no to things? How do I cut out the waste in my life? How do I know on borderline cases, is this something that I want to do or is this something that God wants me to do? And on and on and on. And, you know, to that, all I can say is welcome to the joy and the struggle of the Christian life. You know, that's the whole, that's it. I mean, th- those questions are it. That's, the, that's, the, that's what you're supposed to be doing. But you have to first at least get to the point where you know those are the questions. And, you know, I, the last few weeks have been so practical. Um, we've been talking about specific things you can do. You can take a Sabbath to slow down. You can uh, get proper sleep to slow down. You can set aside this time of solitude to slow down. So those are helpful messages. Um, and that's the good thing about kind of a practical down-to-earth message is that it actually gives you something that you can do and apply. Uh, the the not-so-good thing about those type of messages is that you don't really have an excuse then, and you feel guilty when you don't do it. Um, so the nice thing about this morning, instead of complaining about the generality of it, you can just enjoy that you got a week off. You know, there's no, there's no homework today. There's no specific thing to do to apply this concept. It's just, it's just an idea. It's an idea, and it either grips you or it doesn't. It, and the idea is... There's only one thing. There's only one thing. God has an agenda for you. God's doing something in the world. He wants you to be a part of it. And you can 
lay yourself at his feet as his obedient slave and find fulfillment doing one thing. Or you can chase all this other stuff, filling your plate with all these fragmented things and then try to run around keeping it all in orbit as the center of the universe and have a filled life that's unfulfilled. And you're always going to be in a hurry. If you don't focus on this, if you don't adopt God's agenda for you, then you can do all these other things, but you're always going to be in a hurry. You're always going to be frantic and frazzled and fragmented like Martha, because this is it. So, you know, if you, if you don't get it, um, then that's fine. I probably didn't do a great job explaining it. But if you do get it, if you do see in a new way today with fresh eyes, yes, this is it. Yes, there's only one thing then um, that's, that's something to be grateful for, and something that I'm grateful for, too. Let's pray. Father, we are so consumed by distractions, and we have such a hard time not saying yes to anything that looks good that comes our way. And then we are loaded down with all these commitments that we've made and we don't know how to get out of them and our life is so plural there's there's so many things we have so many things that we're doing and we're we lack so much clarity about how they connect to each other if they connect at all gotta ask that this morning as we've been spending this month on trying to figure out how to slow down. I ask that you'd help us to see in a new way today that the, the heart of it all is submitting ourselves to your agenda for our lives. That until we get rid of this good enough standard and instead adopt a, a kingdom of God mindset, uh, we're always going to be running. And we're always going to be in a hurry. And we're always going to be le- leaving the most important thing undone. I pray that you'd impress it upon our hearts. I pray that instead of being uh, overwhelmed by the bigness of the idea or uh, discouraged by the the inability to figure out how to apply it, that instead you just, this morning, just encourage us and uh, let it be something that inspires us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.